Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, serves in a church uh, in, in the Bible Belt. What I mean by Bible Belt is where it's, it's advantageous socially to be a part of a church. Like you're looked at in a positive way. There are advantages in life uh, to being a part of a church in the Bible Belt. <clears throat> so this guy, pastor, <clears throat> excuse me, serving in, a, in, in a, uh, a church in the Bible Belt. And he, uh, uh, back in the fall, I talked to him a couple weeks ago, back in the fall, he started teaching a small group of teenagers. And he asked them the very first small group, uh, he asked these Church kids, I mean, I say kids, they're high schoolers, these church kids, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And they got all kinds of answers. First of all, there was silence. I mean, no, nobody said anything, which is not atypical of high schoolers. Nobody wants to look dumb. So he started calling names. Um, what's, what's the gospel? And he got things like um, what we're doing right here, like meeting together um, in church, talking about the Bible. He got uh, inviting your friends to church, uh, keeping the, the Old Testament laws. There's a lot of rules in the Bible, and the gospel is keeping those rules. Uh, and after the, all the, the answers had kind of uh, eventually puttered out, um, he uh, turns up to one of the uh, leaders there. Actually, it wasn't in front of the students, but he said, we got a lot of work to do this semester. He said, because none of those, none of those are the gospel. If you've been around here for any time at all, any time at all, you know um, a nightmare that I have as a pastor. I don't think I'm overstating the importance of it. But a nightmare that I have as a pastor is that we would leave here from Wellspring when the Lord takes us away or we move or he calls us home or whatever. But we would, we would be asked the question, what is the gospel, and not have an answer. Or talk about things that we do at church. And that not be the gospel at all. And that, that is a, a frightening thing for me uh, as somebody who stands up, sits up here almost every week. That somehow I would share with you something that you would think that the gospel, the good news, is something other than what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. And the, the, the gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about this over and over and over again in different ways. Jesus nails this topic more than anything else. What is the reason that he came? And this morning, we're going to look at one of the most famous ones. I think it's a, a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And so if you have your Bible, Luke 18 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 18, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 9. Jesus is talking to a group of people, and he is talking about this topic, this, this idea of what is the gospel, what, is the, what does it take to have a right standing with God? What is the, 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 the news, the good news that gives us what it means to have a right standing with God? Jesus pinpoints this question. And he, and he tells a story to, to give us the answer, to give us the answer this morning. So, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse, in verse 9. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So, this tells us who Jesus' audience is. This is who Jesus is talking to. There's a group of people, there's some stragglers or some followers, some hangers-on, 
everyone that are around Jesus. And um, they, they, Jesus, in his um, uh, wisdom, knows what's going on inside their hearts. It, it doesn't take a whole lot of wisdom to realize what is going on here. But Jesus knows. He, he knows that these are people that trust in themselves for their righteousness, for their right standing with God. And they look down on other people who don't live life like them, who don't see the world the way that they see them. They, they have this self-righteousness that they are better than other people and that they are, 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 um, uh, have a right standing with God based on their own goodness. And that's the group of people that are following Jesus around. And then he does something that I think might be missed when you're reading this, maybe in your Bible study uh, time. But I want to point it out, just minor detail. Jesus does not talk about these people to others. He tells a story directly to them. So he didn't, he didn't have this group of stragglers or these followers, these, these hangers-on around him, and then leave them, go over to the disciples, and then badmouth them. He didn't do that. He tells them a story straight to their face and reveals their heart. Well, what's the story? I'm glad you asked. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. So this parable is taking place at the temple. He has these group of people around him, and it takes place at the temple. Now, I don't think it's insignificant that this uh, parable uh, includes the temple. Here's why. Everything about this parable is going to be a contrast. It's going to be this person and, and, and the, uh, uh, the insider that they are, and then this other person and the outsider that they are. Everything about this, this uh, parable is a contrast. And there is nothing more contrasting in their social, in their culture, in their social economy than the temple. Because there were different areas or courts that, that, that the temple had inside of it. There was the outside court, which was called the, the court of the Gentiles. Anybody was welcome there. And then inside of that, there was the, the court of women. Only Jewish women were allowed inside of, of the court of women. And, and the men, because inside of that court were the, was the inner court. And that's where uh, Jewish men were allowed to go. And then inside of that was the holy place. And then inside of that was the holy of holies, where God's presence dwelt. Well, each court, as you move to the center of the temple, became a little bit more exclusive. So you were always very aware of your status in the culture, in the society, when you were at the temple. There was nothing more... Um, uh, Obvious about your status than when you were at the temple. And so the fact that this uh, parable takes place right there at the temple, where everything in, the, in this parable is a contrast, should not escape us. It takes place at the temple. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, most of us in here grew up in church and um, in the, the Gospels, in the Bible, Pharisees are always rebuked. And so we don't have as good of a, of, of, uh, of a view of Pharisees as those in, in, in Jesus' original audience would have had. Like we're, I mean, they're regularly rebuked in the Bible. We talk about it all the time. So when we hear Pharisee, we're like self-righteous, um, terrible person. It looks down on other people. They were regularly rebuked. And we, that's... That's kind of the, the filter that we read about them. But please don't miss this. 
the original hearers of Jesus' parable would not, uh, would not believe that anybody could be more righteous than a Pharisee. I mean, they were the top of the social ladder. They were the best of the best. The creme de la creme. There was nobody above them. They were righteous in the eyes of everybody around them. They were the best. You could not be any better. You could not be any more moral. They were the best. And then the tax collector, if, if the Pharisee was as good as you could be, the tax collector was on the other end of the spectrum. They were as bad as you could be. I mean, these were guys, you, you, you've heard me explain what a tax collector was, but, but just so we're all on the same page. The tax collectors were traitors. Uh, when Rome would come and conquer a, a nation or a city, um, they, they wanted taxes from those people. And they came up with a novel way of, of receiving those taxes. They would get people from the, the, the country that they conquered, get them to, to become traitors, to, to uh, change their allegiance to Rome, and then they would use those people to collect taxes from their fellow countrymen. So a Jewish man would, would give a bid to Rome and say, hey, I'll pay you this much money if I can collect taxes in this city. And then every uh, cycle, uh, the, the Roman Empire would come to this tax collector and say, this, this season or this um, uh, year, whatever the, the timeline was, we want X amount of taxes from you and from the city. And so he would go around to the people, uh, his fellow countrymen, and he would take money from them. And then he would give Rome the amount of taxes that they demanded. But anything above that amount, he was able to keep. And it didn't matter how he collected it. It could be a legitimate way. It could be an illegitimate way. Rome did not care. This was, a, this was a shady business. This was like the first generation of the mafia. I mean, they, this, was, this was a shady business. Think, in our culture, a, a little bit closer to home, think about it like this. Uh, this, is, this would be a, a Jewish man under the, the rule of Nazi Germany turning his back on his fellow countrymen and supporting that regime. I mean, there was nobody worse. These, the, this tax collector was not even allowed inside the temple. And if he found a way in, he could not get beyond the court of the Gentiles. He was hated. He was hated. There was nobody more righteous than the Pharisee, and there was nobody worse than the tax collector. And those are the two people in this story, the two main uh, characters in this uh, parable that Jesus tells. There were two men. Our two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And here's the Pharisee's prayer. Now before we jump in, um, when we read this, we're going to go, we got to kind of roll our eyes. But let me just tell you right off the, the top, this is a good prayer. Like this is a good prayer. This is a prayer that I have prayed for myself and for my kids. This is a prayer you have probably prayed. Like on the surface, when we're just reading the on the surface, we roll our eyes because we know what the Pharisees are like uh, based on what we've read. But don't talk badly on the, the surface about this prayer. This is a good, good prayer. Here's what I mean. Look at it. The Pharisee standing by himself. So he's not going to have a lot of people around him that are, that are listening to him pray, standing off by himself. Pray thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. Now, like I said, this is a good prayer. Who gets the credit for this prayer? 
God does. And this, this Pharisee is standing off all by himself and he's saying, God, I am grateful to you. You're the one who gets the credit that I'm a moral human being, that I'm a moral man. I'm not an extortioner. I don't like to steal money from people. I'm faithful to my wife. I am, I am a good moral person. And God, you're the one who gets the credit for my morality. You're the one who gave me my morality. Now, I will grant you this. He probably could have left the last part of that off. Like, I'm grateful that I'm not like that guy. You and I would probably never say that. But I do guarantee you this. You've thought it. And so have I. God, I, every single one of us. I might not be the best guy, but at least I'm not him. Uh, just a few months ago, I, one of my kids was at an extracurricular activity. And uh, there was a guy... Uh, there, uh, one of the dads sitting there with, with some of the moms, and they were, that while this extracurricular activity was going on, and he was just dogging his wife. I mean, just talk, talking badly about her. And I was at a, a table or, or a little ways away from them, and I, but I could hear everything that was going on, and so could Mary Jo. I mean, he was talking badly about, about, his, about his wife to these other ladies. And I turned to Mary Jo, and I said, that is trouble waiting to happen. And she agreed. And then we, we, you know, he kept going on and on the whole time that this extracurricular activity was going on. And then when we left, I did something stupid. I don't know what it was. It, 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 I do something like that every day. That's why I can't remember. But um, I did something stupid, and Mary Jo fussed at me a little bit or, or whatever. And the only thing that I said was, at least I'm not that other guy. Like, at least I'm not him. And you've done the same thing. And that's all this guy is doing. God, I am a moral person. I'm a good human being. I take my morality seriously. And at least I'm not like this other guy. Every single one of us have done it. So don't be too hard on this guy, at least on the surface, in his prayer. It's a prayer that you have prayed and I have prayed. And if we haven't prayed it out loud, we've prayed it inside of our hearts. He goes on. Not only is he a moral guy, but he's also religious. I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of tithes of all that I get. I mean, this is not JV religious activity. And this is varsity level. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I don't tithe twice. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't fast twice a week. And that's not an easy thing to do. And this guy is is a, a, a religious at the varsity level. He fat or he fasts twice a week, every single week, tw twice a week. He's fasting, and not only that, but he tithes all that he gets. What that means is he would receive his payment. And what Jesus is getting at here, he would receive his payment, like his check, or whatever it was, however he got paid, whatever it was he got paid with, he would receive that, and he would tithe on it. Then some of whatever he received, some of his paycheck, he would put away in savings. And he would do this regularly. Well, it got to the point in, the, in a time in his life that he was going to have to use or live off of his savings. And he tied that again. <laughs> he tied his savings again. So he is double tithing here. Like this is not an easy thing to do. This is top level religious activity. He goes on. And now it's the tax collector's turn. So that's the prayer of the Pharisee. A moral I'm good. I'm not like I'm not like these heathens. And I am very, very serious about my religion. 
Now it's the tax collector's turn. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That, that uh, word, um, uh, a sinner, is not exactly what the, the, the prayer is getting at. And there's the definite article there in the original language. So it should read, uh, or it could read, it should not should, it could read this, this way. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Like he's not comparing himself to anybody else. He is not looking around and saying, well, at least I'm better than, than so-and-so. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. He is saying, I am the chief of sinners. I am not worried about anybody else. I am lost. I am desperate. And I need you, God. Because I am the sinner. Not only that, but that word merciful uh, here uh, that, the, that the tax collector uses is an interesting word. It's not the typical word for mercy. Uh, that means compassionate. I, be compassionate to me. That's not the word that this tax collector uses in his prayer. It's the word halastrion. Halastrion. And here's, here's what it means. In the temple, in the very center part of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. And inside the Holy of Holies, there was this uh, thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, or the halastrion. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. And he would take with him the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the, the substitute. And he would bring in this blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the halastrion. And because of the, the perfect sacrifice, the, the, the lamb that was without blemish, because his blood, uh, because that, that lamb's blood covered the halastrion, the high priest was welcome to come into the presence of God. The, the sins were atoned for by the blood of the lamb, the blood that covered the halastrion. That's the same word that this, that this uh, tax collector uses. And so this tax collector is saying, I'm not looking at anybody else. I am a terrible person. I'm a, I am the chief of sinners. And the only way that I can have a relationship with you, God, the only way that I can have a right standing with you, God, is if you are merciful to me. If, the blood, if your blood, if your blood covers me, if your blood covers me and wipes away my sin, that's the only chance that I have. That's the only way I can have a right standing. I have nothing else to offer because I'm the chief of sinners. He closes it out this way. With maybe the most horrifying verse or sentence in all of the Bible. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Now, if there was a period right there... This would end like a Hallmark movie. We'd go, oh, that's great. The, the tax collector can have a right standing with God through God's mercy, just like the Pharisee can, through his morality. But there's not a period there. There's a comma. And Jesus says this, rather than the other. That's a terrifying verse for church people. That's a terrifying verse for church, for church people. 
that this tax collector, this sinner, this traitor, this mafia member, by begging God for mercy, can have a right standing with him. But the moral man does not. Terrifying verse for church people. Here's what I mean by that. Closes it out this way. For, any, for everyone who exalts, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the problem with the Pharisees' uh, uh, prayer. Let me let me explain it like this. I grew up uh, from uh, I, I grew up uh, in, in a church that had this thing called evangelism explosion, EE, and, and basically what it was was it was a way to learn how to share your faith, learn how to share the gospel, and <clears throat> I, I I learned a little bit about it and. Uh, one of the questions that would be asked was this. <clears throat> you'd go up, you'd visit a house, somebody came to the, ch to the church, visited, and then you'd go and you'd visit their house. This was back in the 90s when it was socially acceptable to do so. And, and you'd go to their house, and one of the questions you would ask is this. Suppose you were to die today. We always like to keep it bright and easy, you know. Suppose you were to die today, and you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? That was one of the questions that you were to ask in evangelism explosion. Now, let's use this question on the Pharisee and on the tax collector. So the Pharisee dies, goes to heaven, and he says, and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Here's what the Pharisee would have said. Because I am moral. You made me a moral man. I kept the, kept the law. I did my best. I tithed. I fasted. I did everything I could to be good. <clears throat> and the Bible tells us over and over and over again, nobody is good enough for that. Nobody. But now, the tax collector's turn. Why should I let you into my heaven? The tax collector says, there is nothing in me, there's nothing in me that should let you in. It is only if you are merciful to me that I can have a right standing with you. It is only because of the blood of your son Jesus that I have the, the chance of getting in. It is only because of your mercy, your son's blood, who has covered my sin and washed it away. That's the only chance that I have. When you respond like that, God says, you're welcome. You're righteous. Come in. What does it mean to be justified? That's, a, that's a, the main word in all of the Bible. The main point of the entire Bible. Justification. It means this, to be pardoned. It doesn't mean that you're guiltless. It means actually that you are guilty, but you have been pardoned. You have been forgiven. That's the main point of the entire Bible. And that is what the tax collector begged for. Pardon me, not because I'm worthy of it, but because you are good and merciful. And your son has died on my behalf. Be merciful to me. A sinner. I'll close with this story. Every morning I get an email in my in my inbox from a guy named Jim Dennison, the Dennison Forum. I, I'd recommend it. It's, it's good reading most of the time. Last week I received a, a modern story that illustrates this point that I've been trying to make. Because if you don't realize the scandal of grace, I have missed, I, I have not done my job this morning. Grace is a scandalous thing. And I think this story illustrates it. 
Dr. Steve Foster is the pastor of a church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In December 2009, he visited the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, in prison. 30 years earlier, uh, Berkowitz terrorized New York City, killing six people and wounding seven others. Police mounted the largest manhunt in New York City history, arresting him on August 10, 1977. Berkowitz claimed to have been obeying the orders of a demon manifested in the form of a dog belonging, belonging to his neighbor, Sam. He pled guilty to second-degree murder and has been serving six consecutive life sentences. While in prison, Berkowitz came to faith in Christ. I told you, grace is scandalous. Such conversions are often uh, a play for media attention or sympathy from parole boards, but Berkowitz is different. He has clearly been sincere. For decades, he's been ministering to other prisoners in Jesus' name. He is especially focused on those who are suicidal or emotionally disturbed. In his blog post, Dr. Foster notes, It was hard for me to imagine this man as the son of Sam. He is humble, gentle, self-effacing. Berkowitz has developed a writing ministry uh, with Christian ministers around the world. His testimony has been used by Prison Fellowship in many of their prison outreaches. Berkowitz views his imprisonment as punishment for his crimes and has regularly refused to attend his parole hearings. He has also issued a, pub a public apology asking for forgiveness from those whom he has hurt. Dr. Foster says that he left his meeting with David Berkowitz with Paul's testimony on his mind from 1 Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. David's transformation shows that the gospel has, that changed Paul's life still changes lives today. He's clearly chosen to depend upon the Lord. His ministry from prison is now being used to touch lives around the world. And, and, and the peace Dr. Foster witnessed in his countenance is evidence that the Prince of Peace rules his heart. After his amazing meeting with Dr. Uh, with Berkowitz, Dr. Foster uh, uh, responded in his blog post like this. Grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, poured out from God upon those who need it. And all of us need it, whether we recognize it or not. The scandal of grace that we all need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that each and every person in this room this morning would be. There is nothing more frightening for church people than this story. If we are depending upon our own righteousness for a right standing with you. If we think that there's something in and of ourselves that will allow us to have a relationship with you, allow us into heaven. Lord, I pray this morning that you would cut through that darkness, through that lie, and we would leave here begging for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.